0: I've been preaching now over 16 years, uh, coming up on 17 years. That's hard to believe. That seems uh, sometimes like a very long time. Sometimes it seems uh, like it's been a very short time. But either way, I want to tell you this morning, in that time, I have come uh, to hold as true. I have come to be fully convinced that our Savior God is worthy of Everything, And I want to tell you this morning, friends, that is what I believe. He is worthy of all of our praise. He is worthy of our, our very lives. He is absolutely worthy of everything. Our Savior God is worthy of our worship. Now, somebody might ask, are you sure about that? Somebody might ask, is he really? Aren't there some things about him that seem kind of questionable. Should we really love God, totally love God? Should we worship God? Is He actually worthy of that? People ask those questions and I'll just tell you rightly so, that's okay, they should ask those questions. Is God really worthy of our worship? I wanna tell you, here is my answer this morning. The more that I look, and the deeper that I look, and the closer that I look, and the longer that I look, without exception, without hesitation, without reservation, without any qualification, friends, I can tell you this morning, He is worthy. He is worthy. Is He worthy of everything? Is He worthy of our lives, of our praise? Is our God worthy? Of our worship, listen to me. He is worthy. Today, there is a popular teaching, a growing teaching, that I believe muddies the water, makes unclear, even makes questionable, the worthiness of God to be radically, wholly worshipped. This morning, we are in part of a six part part six of a seven part sermon entitled. Troubled by Tulip, The Glorious Truth of God's Salvation. It is one sermon. It's delivered in seven parts. This is the sixth part to it. It is entitled, Troubled by Tulip, The Glorious Truth of God's Salvation. The conclusion, part seven, will be tonight. I wouldn't miss that. I would be here tonight. I'm going to be here. You should be here as well. This morning, our message is entitled, Worthy of Worship, Our sovereign God. Worthy of worship, our sovereign God. I'm going to read all of Psalm 93. It's a description of our God. It's a celebration of our God. I'm going to ask if if you would stand with me. Worthy of worship, our sovereign God, Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O oh Lord, forevermore. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. During Father, we come today. We're thankful for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity to come together to worship our risen Savior, Jesus, that in him through faith in your great grace that we are redeemed, that we are saved, that we are forgiven, that we are made new. So Lord, we just come as your people this morning And we rejoice in our Savior. Lord, I pray as we come and as we study today, I pray that you would make clear your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would build your church, that you would shape your church, and it would be again built on the truth of your word. Lord, I pray if there's somebody listening today, maybe in this room, maybe in some other way that does not know you, I pray that the barriers to their hearing would be removed, I pray, Lord, that the the word of God will be made clear. And I pray that in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, that today might be the day of their salvation for your glory, for your name's sake. Lord, again, we come and just tell you, we love you today. We praise you, we worship you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So far in our sermon, if you've been listening We have come through the the Calvinistic or Reformed belief set that is described in the acronym TULIP. Uh, It is an acronym, again, the the letters describing the beliefs of uh, Calvinism or of Reformed theology. Uh, I believe as we have come through this that we have seen that if you hold to any of the parts of TULIP, uh, however they are defined logically, that you embrace all of the parts of tulip. Now some say I like these four or, or I like these three or I exclude this one, but really they are so linked, they are so uh, built upon each other that holding one in their definition leads honestly really to holding all five. I believe that. I also believe we have seen how these five points do not mess with with the message of the gospel. They do not mesh, Uh, they, they do not confirm, they do not look like the message of the biblical gospel. And I think they do not reflect the heart of our savior, Jesus. I personally believe these teachings do damage to both. Well, today we continue to move along and we come to what may be the core question of the whole thing. Now you say, well, where did this come from? What are these belief sets based upon? I believe we travel along and today we come to the core question of the whole thing. And really, I believe the reason for the existence of the five points of Tulip come down to this question. The question is this: What does it mean for God to be sovereign? And that's the question. What does it mean for God to be sovereign. As we begin this morning, I want you to be sure and hear this. I want you to be sure and understand this. Listen to me. Our God is sovereign. He is totally fully sovereign. We serve, we follow, we worship a sovereign God. He is gloriously sovereign. Our God is sovereign. The Bible states that The gospel shows that, and that is the truth. God is sovereign. Be sure of that. Our God is sovereign. However, the question arises when deciding what exactly that means. Now, let's look at it. The word sovereign simply means possessing the right to rule, it can mean, at the same time, exercising. The right to rule. Very simply, it means having the place, having, holding the authority to rule. That's what it means to be sovereign. If you are sovereign, you have the authority, you have the place to rule. Well, we know God's character traits result in His being the sovereign ruler. He is the sovereign ruler. Well, that's based upon His character traits, He is the creator creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He holds them together. He is the possessor of perfect wisdom. He is all powerful. Listen to these things. He is able to do all things. He is all powerful. He is Lord. And all of those things, many more as well, results in his holding, his possessing the authority to rule. God's the creator. He's the sustainer. He is all-powerful, perfect in wisdom. He is Lord. He is sovereign in his rule. That is the truth. He is sovereign. We follow a sovereign God. Right from here, I'm going to have to move very quickly, and I'm going to be very general. Now, I'm going to try to cover the topic thoroughly. I don't want there to be any confusion to come out of this, but really, this is something we could talk about, honestly, for hours and hours and hours. Well, I'm going to be very general, but I'm going to try to move quickly through uh, these truths, these teachings. Here's the question. The question is, God is sovereign. We know that. The Bible teaches that. Here's the question. Can God be sovereign and man have free will? And that's the question. That's the issue. Can God be sovereign and man have free will? Meaning, if people are free to choose, to choose to sin or to choose to obey God, to choose to reject God or to choose to accept God, if people are free to choose, does that render God less than sovereign? That's the question. If people have free will, if they can choose, Does the fact that they can choose make God less than sovereign? Well, here it is. This is where we have a split. The holders of Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace, they have several names they want to go by, or Calvinism, they say this. They say, yes, if man can choose, then that puts God in the place of responding to man's choices. And so if that is so, God's rule is not sovereign. If that is true, here's what they believe, God ultimately is not in control. If people can make decisions, then God has to respond to their decisions. And so somehow God is robbed of his control. That's what they believe. The other viewpoint and I believe it is the biblical viewpoint, is that God in in his sovereign power, listen, God is sovereign, and God in his sovereign power, God confident of his sovereign rule, gives man free choice. Now I want you to see that. Is he he less than sovereign? No, he's totally sovereign, but God confident in his sovereign rule gives man free choice. Free choice. Now, those are huge ideas. Let's go further. The Calvinistic viewpoint offers two main understandings of God's sovereignty. Now they have there's others as well, but these are the two main ones. If you were to come across most folks possessing these beliefs, these are the two main viewpoints concerning God's sovereignty. Now the first one is called. Divine determinism, Divine determinism. Now divine determinism holds God decides, decrees, ordains, and empowers all things to come to pass. As He decrees, everything goes as He decides. And their belief that in divine determinism, is that cannot exist with free will, that cannot exist with free choice. It's the belief that God is the cause of all things and that cannot reconcile, that cannot coexist with free will, with free choice. Let me give you a quote. This is from John Calvin himself. God, by his secret bridle, he has a bridle we can't see, so holds and governs that they, talking about people, cannot move even one of their fingers without accomplishing the work of God more than their own. He he teaches everything is orchestrated by God. B.B. Warfield says this, There is nothing that is and nothing that comes to pass that God has not first decreed and then brought to pass. Again, everything is orchestrated by God. R.C. Sproul, we've talked about him before, he says this, if there is one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, God is not God. Divine determinism holds God is the cause of all things, and man does not have free will. Now, there's many Calvinist folks, many Reformed folks, and they'll tell you this. They'll defend this. They'll explain this the same way that I did. God is the cause of all things, and that cannot coexist and coincide with the free will of man. Now, stay with me. Their second way to address God's sovereignty and man's free will is called compatibilism. Compatibilism. You're learning a whole bunch of new words. Compatibilism holds that God's sovereign rule and man's free will are not opposed to each other, but they are compatible. They can coexist. They do coexist. So here's the definition of compatibilism. God's sovereign rule and man's free will, they are compatible. They can and do coexist. God is sovereign in his rule and man has free will and that is compatible. Now I want you to listen right here. This is how they get a hold of a whole lot of people. This is how they've gotten a hold of a whole lot of Baptist churches lately. They come along and say, you know what? This is is what we believe. We believe in compatibilism. We believe God is is determining all things, but we believe that is somehow compatible with human free will. God is sovereign in his rule, and man has free will. And that is compatible. Let me tell you this. I agree with that. I agree with that. Except... That's not how they define it. Now, if we define it like that, I would say, I agree with that. If, if, If we define it like that, I would say, I can endorse that. That's what they say. Those are their words, but that's not how they define it. Now, here's what we have. A lot of times, we have a problem in definition. We have love, and we believe what we know what love means. There's three definitions of love, according to them. We have faith, and we know what faith means. They got two definitions of faith. We know what will means. The the will of God, the will of man. They have three definitions of God's will. And so it becomes a problem of definitions. Now here is their idea of compatibilism. Listen very carefully. Listen to this. Their idea of compatibilism is this. You have free will, and so you can do what you want. But God decides what you want. That's their definition. You have free will. It exists. The Bible teaches it. And so you have free will. You can do what you want, but God decides what you want. You will carry out your desire. This is what they teach. You will carry out your greatest desire. You're free to do so, but God determines what it is you will desire. Now, think about Tulip total depravity. You will not want him. That's an outflow of this unconditional election. You will want him. And if he decides you're going to want him, you're going to want him. You have free will, he just decides what your will is. Now, I want you to listen. I am no genius. (laughs) I'm not a genius. I'll, I'll just tell you this my undergraduate degree is in agriculture. I'm not a genius. I'll tell you, I don't know everything. But I want to tell you something. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. That's not logical. That's silly. You can do what you want. You have free will, except God decides what it is you want. That's nonsense. That's not logical. Be very sure. Here's the conclusion of that. Calvinism, doctrines of grace, reformed theology, theology, They believe. It doesn't matter how they define it. I went to a church's website this week, and they say, we believe in free will. And say, well, hey, that sounds like us. And then they have this other definition. It doesn't matter how they define it. Here's what they believe. They believe there is no free will. And so they can change the definitions. They can represent it how they want They can say, hey, it's hard divine determinism and they can just make it plain or they can say this compatibilism but the the truth is this. They ultimately believe there is no free will and they believe that that version of sovereignty is Calvinism. Do you see how this builds on top of each other? Do Do you see how it all comes down to this point? And so they believe Calvinism is God's Sovereignty. Very simply, here's what they believe. If Calvinism is not true, then God is not sovereign. That's what they believe. If Calvinism's not true, if there's a choice for man, if if God's left to respond to the choice of man, then God is not sovereign. I talk to people today, and maybe you do too, and they say, you know what, I'm not sure about all this. And I want to tell you, it is pretty deep and it is kind of confusing. But they'll say, you know what, I'm not sure about all this, but I do know God is sovereign, and so I'm a Calvinist. And that's what they'll say. I I do know God is sovereign, and so I'm going to go with John Calvin. I'm going to go with this teaching. Folks, be very clear. God is sovereign, but his sovereignty is not Calvinism. Pretty tough statement. Pretty strong statement. Let me show you why. All through the study, we keep finding beliefs have implications. That's in all areas of life, in all situations. If if you believe something, if you hold something as true, that belief has an implication. Beliefs have implications. Well, I'm going to give you some of, there's a bunch of them, and I'm going to give you some of the implications of if this belief is true. If the idea of God's, if this idea of God's sovereignty is true, if divine determinism is true, here's some of the implications. Now I want you to get ready. These are huge. The first one is this. If divine determinism is true, if there is no free will, first thing is this. Man is emptied of opportunity and therefore is without responsibility. That's a pretty deep statement. I want you to hear it again. If there is no free will, man is emptied of his opportunity, and therefore is without responsibility. Now what that means is, is if man has to respond, as man is programmed to respond, how can he be responsible, how can he be accountable for his actions? Now they have a formula, they have verses that they would use to respond to that, but I'm just asking you that logically. If man has to respond, as man is programmed to respond, how can that man be accountable and responsible for his actions? If man is told to believe and he's unable to believe, how is he held accountable for his unbelief? It is not just, and it is not loving, and it is not gracious to damn that man for the sin of unbelief. He cannot believe. God does not give him the ability to believe. He is told to believe, and it is not loving, it is not just, it is not gracious for that man to be damned for the sin of unbelief. That's just logical. If man has no free will, he's emptied of his opportunity. And if he's emptied of his opportunity, he is therefore without responsibility. To be, listen to me, responsible, to be responsible, you have to be response-able. Does that make sense? To be responsible, you have to be response-able, able to respond. If there is no free will, if divine determinism is true, number one, man is emptied of his opportunity, therefore he is without responsibility. Let me just tell you this, that's not our gospel. Our gospel says we're guilty of our sin. We have a punishment we've earned in our sin. The grace of God, Jesus comes and settles that that problem. Second thing, and I'll just tell you this is worse. (laughs) This may be worse than all of them, but it's worse than that. It's Blasphemous, and I'll just tell you it's flat disgusting. If this understanding of God's sovereignty is true, listen, then God is responsible for evil. If this understanding is true, then God is the cause of and the author of evil. Now I want you to stay with me. I want you to see this. In this belief set, God needs evil. God needs evil. He needs evil so he can demonstrate his justice. He's gonna judge sin, he does judge sin, and so he needs evil to demonstrate his justice. He needs evil to showcase his grace. If he's gonna show that he is gracious to us as sinners, then he needs evil to showcase grace. He needs evil to reveal himself as the Savior. If he is the Savior, Jesus is the Savior, he needs evil and sin to redeem us from. He needs evil to, to show himself as the Savior. And so because he needs it, he ordains it. Ultimately, he causes it to happen. Now, here's how, here's how they propose this. Adam is in the garden and he has no sin nature, there's never been a sin. And yet because free will contradicts God's sovereign rule, they hold that just like God causes belief, God causes sin. And so there in the garden, God withholds the, now this is their word, constraining grace that would keep Adam from sinning. Here's Adam, he doesn't have a sin nature, He he is there in the garden, and God withholds the constraining grace that would keep Adam from sinning. And so with no choice, Adam sins. If Adam could decide, if he had a free choice either way, he would force God to act based upon his choice. And so if he had free choice, God would be at his beck and call, and it would change God's actions and God would be less than sovereign. And so protecting this idea of God's sovereignty, God ordains and author's sin. Lorraine Botner quoted him last week. He says, even the sinful actions of men can occur only by his permission, and then he permits not unwillingly but willingly. John Piper, he says this. He says a lot of things that make me dizzy, but here's here's one of them. He says, in some way, I don't know, <laughs> in some way, God is able without blameworthy tempting. Now, the Bible says he doesn't tempt us. And so in some way without tempting, God is able to see to it that a person does what God ordains for him to do, even if it is evil. God causes him to sin. That's what he says. Another quote by Lorraine Botner says, God wills righteously those things what men do wickedly. Now listen to that again. See, See if that sounds right. God wills righteously... Those things, what men do wickedly. Listen to this one. i saved it for last. John Piper again. He says this. It isn't that God manages to turn the evil aspects of our world to good for those who love him. Now, that's what the verses in Ephesians say. He works all things for good for those that love him. He says, it's not that God manages to turn the evil aspects of our world to good for those who love him. It is rather that God himself, that he himself, brings about those evil aspects for his glory. That's what he says. He doesn't turn them and use them for good. He is the cause of evil. Now, you can go read him, heinous crimes. Crimes of abuse, crimes against children. He says, even the Holocaust. John Piper says, God brings those about for his glory. Folks, if this is true, then God is the author of evil. Now listen, they will recoil at that, and they'll try to reframe it, and again, they'll try to redefine it, And they'll say, he facilitates it. Some say that. He ensures it. One says that, but he's not responsible for it. Do you hear that? He ensures sin, but somehow does not bear responsibility for it. John Piper shows us here in his quote. Listen, they can't have it both ways. Understand, under this system, God is the author of evil. Now I want to tell you something right here that is as slanderous and that is as blasphemous and that is as wrong as it gets. I could keep going for a while, but I'm going to go one more. I'm going to go one more. If this view of God's sovereignty is true, if defined determinism is true, here's the next implication. If this is true, then God's word is a double-sided, schizophrenic mess. If this is true, that's the reality. Now, I want you to think about this. God says, believe. He doesn't give the ability to believe. That's schizophrenic, isn't it? God says, be holy. Be holy as I am holy. But he sees to it that you can't be holy. He empowers the sin that you do. Schizophrenic. God says he hates sin. He says he abhors sin, and yet he is the author of it. That's schizophrenic. Paul Helm, another guy, he he says this. God commands men and women to love their neighbor while at the same time ordaining actions which are malicious or hateful. He says love your neighbor, and then he causes you to carry out malicious actions. If this version of God's sovereignty is true, God's word is a schizophrenic mess. I said I was going to stop there. I'm not. I'm going to go one more. (laughs) If this version of God's sovereignty is true, listen to me. If this version of his sovereignty is true, he is not just. He is not loving. He is not patient. He is not gracious. He is not kind. He is not truthful by any usable definition. If this definition is true, listen to me. He is not good. That's not a good God. If this definition is true, he's not any of those things. And so I want you to hear me this morning. And so he is not worthy of worship. Not that God. No, he's not worthy of worship. Not the God, not the description they're painting. No, that's not worthy of worship. Some of you want to know why would we preach these messages? Why would we take this stand? Why would we upset all these people? Listen, it's because the truth is, friends, that is not our God. And the truth matters. And so what is the truth? Now I'm going to tell you, the the joy of this sermon series, of this one long sermon, has been this. If we get to talk about what the truth is not, guess what we get to also do? We get to talk about what the truth is. And I want to tell you, the joy of this whole thing is to see how gracious our God is, how wonderful our Savior is, how awesome is our gospel. And so the question this morning, what is the truth? What is the truth? Listen to me very closely. The truth is, listen, it all goes back To a choice. What is the truth? The truth is it all goes back to a choice. In the garden, in the perfection of creation, there is no sin. God says, Here is a tree. God says, Here is my word. Do not eat of that tree. There in the garden, He says, Here is a choice. Here is a tree. Here is my word. Don't eat of the tree. There in the garden, He presents them with a choice. You can trust and obey. Or you can rebel and sin. There in the garden, what does it start with? It starts with a choice. And there in that garden, in complete perfection, man sins. In an instant, at an actual place in time, man sins. And it is his choice. It is not God's need. There in the garden, man sins. And he is responsible. It's not God's twisted plan that's responsible There in the garden, because of his choice to sin, evil enters in. Be sure evil is the result of man's choice. It is not God's device. Understand this morning the problem of evil is not a conflict in the nature of God, He can have no part of evil. The problem of evil is a conflict in the heart of man. And so man sins. In sin, evil enters in and it is the responsibility of man and lest we forget in the midst of that stands god that's what this whole thing's about we're measuring god we're seeing who he is this is really a discussion over the nature of god and so there in the garden there's a choice and man sins And there, because of sin, evil has entered in. And lest we forget, there stands our sovereign God. And his beloved creation has rejected him. There stands our sovereign God. And his beloved friend, the Bible says he walked with him as a friend in the cool of the day. His beloved friend has now turned on him. And our sovereign God stands there in the cherished apple of his eye, the apex of his creation, has sinned against him. He didn't sin against Satan. He didn't sin. Adam didn't sin against himself. He didn't sin against anybody but God. Therefore, my sin is before me, and against you and you alone have I sinned. There stands God, our sovereign God, and his cherished creation has sinned against him. And now this man will live in suffering. He will work in toil. He will end in death. And all of it he will do separated from the God that loves him. And all of it before the eye of his creator. And there stands our sovereign God. Friends, I want you to answer me this morning. Does that make God any less powerful? Does that make God any less in control? Does that make God any less wise? Does that make God any less sovereign? No, listen to me. Those things aren't possible. He can't be any less of any of those things. There stands in that garden our sovereign God. Is he robbed of his glory? Has the free choice of man made him less than glorious? If you could see him, is that what you would say? No, friends, that's not possible. Because that sovereign God, listen to me. For no need of his own. Our sovereign God. For no relief of his own. Has another tree in mind. And on that tree. The consequence of this tree. Will be repaired. And on that tree, the hurt and the heartache of this tree will be forever remedied. And on that tree, listen to me, dear friend, the sinful choice of man will meet the gracious, sovereign rule of God. And justice will prevail. And mercy will reign. And sin will be atoned for. And grace will be administered. And you tell me, looking at those two trees, is God any less powerful? Is he any less wise? And is he any less moral? marvelous. No. Has he been robbed of his glory? No. Far from it. The testimony of the two trees, the duet sung by the two trees is Jesus paid for sin. Jesus is gracious. Jesus in his grace offers it to us and he is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. (laughs) Robbed of his glory. No. No. Is worthy. He is worthy. Let's pray. Dear me, Father, we come. Oh, we praise you. We worship you. Oh Lord, we thank you. Knowing we would sin against you, you create us anyway. Knowing we would reject you. (laughs) Your grace is greater. Your power is greater. Knowing your friends would turn against you. You create anyway. You offer a choice. You don't lose control in that. In that, you provide a savior. In that, you provide a way. In that, your glory is known and magnified. What a Savior. What a, what a gracious Savior. Lord, we come today and we just tell you, you are worthy. Lord, we come and I pray that you have spoken. And I pray that these are your truths, not mine. But they're your truths. Now I pray as we survey as we scripture, that you confirm your truth, you strengthen your truth, and you give us resolve to stand in your truth. Lord, I pray if there's somebody that needs you, somebody that has st- stood in the weight of their sin that stands in it, somebody that's in the guilt and the shame of their sin that needs a remedy, I pray, Lord, they would hear the good news that there is a Savior. He came and he paid for sin and he went to a grave placed in it dead, the payment for sin, he came out of it. And yes, today he is alive. He is alive. Lord, I pray that they would find peace in you. I know they will. I pray that they would find hope in you. I know it's the only place to find hope. Lord, I pray that the fruit would bring great glory to you. And then I pray for us as a church, that as we live in a dark, dark, dark day, that we would be agents, ambassadors of that light, of that truth, that we would say there is a God and he is gracious, and there is a Savior and he is kind. There is grace, and yes, it is free by faith in Jesus. And we would proclaim the good news of our gospel. Let it bear fruit, Lord. Let it bear fruit for your glory. Lord, we tell you we're thankful for today. We're thankful for this opportunity this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close our service with a time of response, a time of invitation. And if you're here, I want to tell you the good news of the gospel is this. God loves you. No distance is too far. No sin is too great. God loves you. He loves you so much he sent his only begotten son, and he came, greatest act of love, greatest act of grace ever. He lives a life where he doesn't sin, that he may offer himself in our stead, in my place, and in yours. The Bible says if we will turn to him, trusting him as our Savior, the remedy for our sins, you know what he does? He will save us. Romans 10.9, Romans 10.13, call upon the name of the Lord, profess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, and you will save. Be saved. The good news is you can be saved right now. You can be forgiven right now. Restore the Holy God right now. Turn to Jesus. He'll save you. If you've never done that and you're here, turn to him today. He'll save you. If you're listening to some other means, some other way, turn to Jesus. He'll save you today. Maybe you're here and you've made that decision, but you've never followed believer's baptism. As a testimony, showing what we believe of Jesus, celebrating what we believe and know of Jesus, you come as well. Let's set a day that'll be a great day of celebration. You know what I'm, I've made a profession of faith. I know Jesus. Maybe it was recently, maybe it was further back, but I've never fallen believer's baptism. And I want to do that in obedience to Christ. You come. God will bless it. We'll celebrate it. Maybe you're here and you're looking for a church home and you've prayed about it. You believe God has led you here. And together we'll uphold his truth, his word, his gospel, all for his name's sake you believe God has led you here, you come as well. Together we'll serve his cause until he comes back and gets us or until he comes again. Maybe you're here and you have other things going on. Maybe you're here and you're facing other things in your life and you want to come and humility, pray at an altar. Maybe you want to come pray with me. The Bible tells us nothing's too big, nothing's too small. He hears, he answers, he is faithful. Maybe you want to come and pray at this time. I'm going to ask that no one would stir about, no one would head for an exit you would pray for those that are making decisions. If God has spoken to you, as we stand and sing, you step out. You come on, I'll meet you here. You come on, I'll meet you here.